0: Hey everyone, this is Mary. I'm so excited to be coming to you with one of our Patreon episodes. Now, for $3 a month, which we call the Dunkin' Shiro level, which is now actually cheaper than an actual Dunkin' iced coffee, you can get an extra episode a month where we tackle all kinds of topics suggested by you or things we just feel like getting into, whether they be books books. TV shows, movies, what have you. In addition to that, you get access to our Discord community, which has really active conversations about all kinds of things. And on there, you'll also find a book club led by Allison, PowerPoint parties on a whole host of topics that you can attend and present at, and all kinds of things. It's a really fun community. And for $3 a month, we so appreciate all of you who have joined us there. To give you a sense of what it's like, we want to bring you an episode on a topic suggested by one of our listeners. So this is an episode where we read and discussed from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler by E.L. Konigsberg, which is truly one of my favorite books. I was so delighted to get this suggestion and we will be so delighted to return to you with new episodes in June. Thanks, everyone. Welcome, everyone, to American Girls, the podcast. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book, except here on Patreon, where we're kind of doing whatever we want and you ask for that we think is within the world of our show. So on this episode, we're so, so excited to be bringing you one of your picks, one of your requests, a true classic. On this episode, we'll be talking about from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. Before I forget, I'm Mary. I'm basil. Wow. no I'm Allison. how hot as basil in the beginning? No, you're basil and I'm Claudia. Really? I think that's true. <laughs> <Probably> yeah, <laughs> true. Um, wow, this book, I was so elated when somebody suggested this actually a couple people did for us to cover. I don't know. do you want to give a summary at the start? How do we want to begin Allison? I would
1: love to. This book is a classic. It is from 1967, and I want to start actually doing something a bit different. I found various publishers' overviews that mention it's essentially two children who hide away in a museum and their encounter with this eccentric woman, uh, Frank Weiler. But someone said that the opening paragraph of this book is one of the finest examples of tight exposition that also introduces the whole plot, and I agree, so I'm going to read those sentences. Claudia knew she could never pull off the old-fashioned kind of running away. That is, running away in the heat of anger with the knapsack on her back. She didn't like discomfort. Even picnics were untidy and inconvenient. All those insects in the sun melting on the cupcakes. Therefore, she decided that her leaving home would not just be running from somewhere, but would be running to somewhere to a large place, a comfortable place, an indoor place, and preferably a beautiful place. And that's why she decided upon the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City.
0: Iconic. Simply iconic. Allison, what is your personal history with this book before we get into it?
1: I love this book. The copy of it that I own was a very faded kind of yellowy cover which featured Claudia, our protagonist, and her brother Jamie hiding away and looking into the large bed that they ultimately sleep in in the Met. I loved this book. It was my older sister's and then it became mine and I was so happy that it made me laugh, you know, almost 30 years later.
0: Yeah, I have a similar experience with it, which is that I never owned it. I got it from the library then and now, but I remember genuinely finding it hilarious. And I loved the tone of it because it felt like a book for grown-ups, even though it was for kids. And we can kind of get into more of what that might mean. But this book, if it says anything about me, the funniest books I read when I was a child and I still find them funny today are this book and sideways stories from Wayside mm-hmm. School, which I still think is funny because both of them kind of have an absurdist piece to it. And there's just something about it where it's like it has its, such a clear its own identity and tone. And it seems to embrace eccentricity in a way that I personally love. And I saw one of our listeners describe this book and say it kind of is like a queer iconic book because of that. or And maybe they meant for a different reason, but I kind of think that that's a through line in a kind of complimentary way.
1: Yeah, the way that this book is written, this piece I did not remember, but we're drawn into this story of Claudia and her brother, Jamie. And Claudia is a planner and her brother is cheap. And so they're kind of this perfect pair to escape their life. And we learn that Claudia... There really isn't like one reason why she's running away, right? She isn't having a kind of knee jerk reaction to anything. She just wants to feel special and different, which is a human universal. And when we're introduced to Claudia, it's done through this framing of uh, Basil Frankweiler writing to her lawyer, and there's these asides all throughout the text where she's uh, writing to her lawyer and kind of referring back to what's happening. And she kind of interjects in the narrative. So we're we're kind of wondering the whole time, like, what's the connection between these two? Why, why does Frank Weiler know about these two kids living in the museum? And as I was reading it, I kept thinking I would read 500 pages of this.
0: Yeah. I wouldn't
1: care how long it was.
0: I love this book so much. I want to like live in this lady's head. I want to be her friend. I want to hang out with her. She also iconically lives in Farmington, Connecticut, which is sort of an interesting choice. The kids live in Greenwich, which I'm a lifelong Connecticut resident. And I'll just say like, I am not of the Greenwich vintage of Connecticut, like no shade if you're from vintage, but like, I don't understand what that lifestyle is of like basically living in a suburb of New York City. But Farmington is a, a lot closer to where I'm from in the Hartford area. It's not a place I would think of as like like a country estate being located per se. But I love that the book actually starts off with her letter to her lawyer, Saxonberg. And this lady's just like, she has nothing left to lose. She's like one of these people I love where it's like she's so such an icon. She does not care what other people think about her. And she said, um, I just want to read a couple of sentences that make me laugh. Um, to my lawyer, Saxonberg, I can't say that I enjoyed your last visit. It was obvious that you had too much on your mind to pay any attention to what I was trying to say. Perhaps if you had some interest in this world, besides law, taxes, and your grandchildren, you could almost be a fascinating person. Almost. That last visit was the worst bore. I won't risk another dull visit for a while. So I'm having Sheldon, my chauffeur, deliver this account to your home. And it's like. Wow, imagine feeling that empowered to just say exactly how you feel. Yes, and I I think part of what I like about this book is
1: it is set in the 1960s, but it also feels very much outside of time,
0: right? Yes. I
1: think there's a lot of elements of it where you could place her, I think just as easily in the 1930s. You could place her in 2000 because she's an eccentric, so she doesn't have to live within the same boundaries as other people. And there's something so relatable about Claudia wanting to run away. And I know that you have brothers. I have a brother. Claudia's kind of ranking of her siblings and who she's going to choose to run away with her. It is. It's iconic. Um, And also, could you talk about her relationship with Kevin?
0: Kevin is her youngest sibling and they have to take turns like taking charge of him. And she absolutely never wants it to be her turn. She's the eldest and she takes that on as like almost an identity where she's like, you know, I never had anyone taking care of me except mom who waited for me at school every, like at the school bus every single day. And it's like, okay, so you did. And it's just sort of like these self narratives of like where, how much kids invest and what number sibling they are, where they kind of fall in the timeline. And so Kevin is like the person that she never wants responsibility for. And she's like, oh, like he has the easiest life. Yeah, she's also obsessed with
1: the fact that she has to empty everyone's trash cans, which was also something I had to do as a young person. So I related to that. On Saturdays, Claudia emptied the wastebaskets, a task she despised. There were so many of them. And, And we learned that there's basically seven of them. There really aren't that many, but part of what I love about this is the waste baskets are then used as a vehicle for Claudia to both learn things about people in her family and to pick up an all-important ticket. And she's kind of complaining about how her mother is wasteful and then finds this ticket that's discarded that still has some punch holes uh, to get into New York City. So it's also how she and Jamie are able to
0: run away. I also like, too, that we kind of get her childlike evaluation of her siblings where she's like, "Okay, you're good at this and I'm good at that. So you could help me do this thing, but I could help you do this thing. And it's just very primal in a way, in a way that siblings are with each other where it's like, yeah, I'm better at you than this and you're better at me than this. But like together we could maybe do this other thing. And it's very grudging. Like you don't want to ask your sibling for help. And I love how she's monitoring Jamie's card game on the bus. Like he plays a game every day with his friend. They play war, and she she knows that about him. But she also knows that he's like incredibly frugal, to put it lightly.
1: He's cheap and he cheats. Like those are his two defining characteristics. But he's also fun to be around.
0: Yes, he's very fun. And like, he doesn't really ask a lot of follow up questions where she's like, do you want to do this thing? And he's basically like, yeah, okay, like,
1: so she accosts him on the bus while they're away from family. And he asks her point blank, why pick me? Why not pick on Steve? Um, and Steve is another brother as well as Kevin. So they're sandwiched by these brothers. Claudia sighed, I don't want Steve. Steve is one of the things in my life that I'm running away from. (laughs) I want you. And I think what makes this book funny is we have the literal moments where um, Frank Weiler interjects like the next line, despite himself, Jamie felt flattered flattery is an important machine as the lever, isn't it, Saxonberg? So like we have this kind of adult perspective barging in, but the way that Jamie and Claudia talk is also very adult, like to just say he's one of the things I'm running
0: away from. And that's something that I don't like when people evaluate children's literature, when they say things like, well, kids don't speak that way. And I kind of think I play it both ways where sometimes I'm like, yeah, they're right. Kids don't speak that way. Like when, you know, thinking about shows like Gilmore girls, I remember when that was on people were like, well, there's no way that, you know, a mother and daughter speak that way or anyone speaks that quickly with that many pop culture references, but it's sort of like, but within, if you just sign on for what they're saying, this is, you just kind of have to evaluate it in its own right. And you kind of go with it. And in the same way, that's how I read this book where Claudia is both speaking past her age, but you might also read that as like someone who desperately wants to be exceptional or just have something of note about her or to be grown up trying to speak beyond her years and then not really getting there, kind of showing her youth. Like on the very next page, there's an exchange that says, Jamie asked, can I wear sneakers? Claudia answered, of course, wearing shoes all the time is one of the tyrannies you'll escape by coming with me. It's like, referring to wearing shoes as a tyranny. I mean, it's like, is that something an adult does maybe, but I mean, it's just like, it's so charming, like their use of language and the ways that Claudia polices English grammar would drive me personally insane, but it's also one of those like child reaching for maturity or refinement or what they imagine that to be.
1: We also have a very funny moment that kind of rounds out the pre runaway portion which is Claudia has to actually take care of Kevin, and he kind of bemoans that it's her, it's her turn, right? Because they all take turns, and he's asking for Steve, and and Steve is really such like a straw man in this book. Kevin whines, "I wish it could be Steve's turn every week." You just may get your wish. Kevin never realized then or ever that he had been given a clue and pouted all the way home, which is just like really brilliant turn of phrase.
0: And it also kind of shows what I love, which is that. Mrs. Frankweather is not on the side of all children or like, she's not someone who's like, I'm giving kids the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to speak to them as children. She's like, yeah, he never realized it then or now. Like, and there's moments when she sort of like is critical of the kids and I don't know, it just like really makes me laugh. Now, what happens next is we have these
1: two children who do actually run away and they go from Connecticut to New York City and they live in the Met for days. Is this something you would do?
0: Yeah, I was thinking a lot about this. And I think the first question I have is, is it the Met specifically? So we have to kind of contend with, would you be willing to live in the Met? Second question, would you be willing to live in another museum, not the Met? First question, I think I would be willing to live in the Met because of the kind of museum it is. It has the whole rooms collection. So they're living in, they sleep in a historic bed at one point. And what's interesting about that is that just as a quick aside, I was reading that the author E.L. Konigsberg was in the Met with her children when her son said she got the idea for this book. And he, he cites the moment without her confirmation. They actually had a memorial for her after she passed in 2013, the following year, they had a memorial in the Met for her. And the son tells a story where he said they were in a room with a historic bed and the mom saw some popcorn on the floor and she kind of wondered how it got there. And that inspired this book. So I feel like if I could be in a place where I could sleep in a historic bed, I would do it. I don't know. I mean, I would also be open to a a house museum, a historic house museum, because I feel like I could be comfortable in that life. Like as a Leo, I might need a Newport mansion kind of vibe, but, and I like to be by the ocean. Your thoughts, Allison? I think the Met specifically is too much like a mausoleum, right? There's too much, you know,
1: harshness around it. And I would be too afraid. For example, they have to hide out in the bathroom while security is making their grounds. Um, You know, something that I do think is very charming is this is all about Claudia trying to find her own way to be her own person and to find a way to stand out. And, When it starts, we think Jamie is kind of this accessory who happens to have money. But there's these really beautiful moments that subtly remind us about siblings and friendship. You know, there's this line that, this would actually take the courage of two Kincaids together, right? Like mm. they did actually need each other. Um, I know that I certainly wouldn't do it alone. I wouldn't hide out in a museum alone. I think part of this is it's the fantasy of getting away with something that you know you're not supposed to do. Like the museum is the most heightened example when you're a kid of places that are so perfectly put together and you're invited to learn there, but then you. Have have to leave and Claudia just rejects that. Like it's going to be her house, her her playhouse.
0: Yeah, I love that she sort of reimagines this as like a home space and that it makes total sense to her. And yeah, I I just I love that she doesn't really accept any boundaries. I also love the way that they immediately empower themselves as the two people who can solve the mystery about the Michelangelo alleged Michelangelo sculpture. Without, like, just assuming that any adult involved has just missed something central that they'll be able to figure out.
1: Yeah, and as you mentioned, the piece about the popcorn being sort of the genesis for the running away and the hiding, there is an actual historical story that also motivated the author to write this which she did by the way while raising her children like in the midst of everything else and there are stories that she would read portions of the manuscript aloud and if her kids laughed she kept them in and if they didn't laugh she got rid of them so it became a very kind of like Mm. tight funny narrative um but yeah to this idea that every adult is missing something, but you've caught it. I think it's kind of a wonderfully empowering thing for young people to read.
0: Yeah. Cause I think when you're a kid, you're always thinking like, God, adults think they know everything and they're just condescending to you all the time. And this is a book that absolutely does not condescend at all. I mean, Mrs. Frankweiler condescends to everyone, but that's rich lady condescension. It's not adult to child. You don't know anything. If anything, she like, is trying to untangle like their psychological, like their thought process in her letter to Saxonberg the whole time. So she takes them incredibly seriously. And I actually think for kids, that's not the, you know, major message, but to read that in a book, I think that would be really kind of empowering.
1: Well, it's also this fantasy that you could run away, hide, not get in trouble, make a major breakthrough, meet a cool old lady who sort of wants to befriend you, right? And then all of these things, you know, ultimately don't really have any negative consequences. If anything, it just sort of empowers these two people. And that's where this book reads to me almost more like a fantasy novel than anything else. And I came across this old Twitter thread from 2019, where Guy Branham actually compares Claudia Kincaid to other kind of iconic women um, in, in the canon of heroes. Like you can think mm. of a Hermione Granger or someone from Hunger Games. And I loved this line that he writes, Claudia is not the chosen one. Claudia chooses herself. No owls, nor no wardrobes. Claudia, a girl on the precipice of sexualization and the accompanying dehumanization, opts out. She refuses to live the life she's been assigned to. She goes not to wilderness, but to culture. Hmm. And uh, she says, uh, or sorry, Guy Branum says, the villain in Mix-Up Files is existential dread. It's knowing how boring your life will be. Um, Because he says there's no villain, but there is. There's so much uh, tension and drama without like an owl popping up or like a, a, a door that leads to somewhere. And I think this so fits with how I think of my own reading style, which is like there's so much drama around every corner this is the kind of fantasy that appeals to me.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I'm not someone who needs a lot of external plot for books to be interesting to me. I'm really interested in like people's internal lives. And I think this is a book actually geared towards children that centers your internal life as being something that matters and that actually has a lot going on within it. And I really like that to me, actually the natural conduit to this book, or I guess like the adult extension would be, um, the Royal Tenenbaums to me is like a natural extension of this story in the sense of not only existential dread being the main conflict in your life or like this feeling of like, is this it? Like there's a feeling with Claudia, the whole book where she's kind of like, wait, what if this is it? What if I never do anything that makes me special? is this what it is to be a person? Like, what am I supposed to do with my life? Like, am I supposed to be some like special thing? And in that movie, the premise is like, they were geniuses as kids. And then like it's ruined their adulthood because they have no idea how to function or like top that, but they feel this dread that they should. And they don't have a Mrs. Basil Frankweiler to like kind of capstone a mystery that gives their lives meaning or, you know, hope or whatever it is we're supposed to take from that.
1: To that point, uh, Gia Talento did a great 50-year retrospective and writes, There's no sentimentality in the book. Kids aren't homesick for their parents, they don't romanticize the museum, and there's not a hint of moral instruction throughout the whole thing. When, uh, for example, in one of the most famous scenes of the book, we find uh, Jamie and Claudia going into the fountain to try to get clean and then realizing (laughs) that there are coins that they can take and like totally dragging themselves down. There really isn't much of an extended conversation of whether they should or shouldn't, right? They just kind of revel in the power of this. I think this conversation also, if we were to zoom out Part of what makes them able to like delight and revel in this is, of course, they're white kids. They yeah. fit in wherever they go when other field trips come through, including their own class they're able to just blend in. And and there's never anyone who is kind of putting them under surveillance. So in terms of the fantasy element, that is something that a lot of kids couldn't actually enjoy and really does feel like an alternate reality, I think, for the 1960s. I think that's
0: definitely true. I also think it's interesting that there's absolutely no sentimentality around what they've put their parents through and also no real feelings of homesickness. Not really. But at one point at the end of the book, Mrs. Frankl, is was like, aren't you at all worried about your parents or like what you put them through? And they're like, meh, not really.
1: Well, and there's, there's the kind of sliding doors moment where uh, they are in pursuit of trying to learn whether Michelangelo actually made this piece that was acquired for just a few hundred dollars. And they, they decide they're going to solve the mystery And what first intrigues them is there's all these people queued up to see it, and they see New York Times reporters. So Claudia demands that they spend the money on a newspaper, and there's a funny kind of interjection from our narrator that if she had just flipped one page or the other, she would have seen a story about herself being missing but Claudia is so focused in on the one mystery she cares
0: about. She's not concerned. Well, and even when she shows them the picture of them in a different paper and kind of tells them like you were in this paper this day and whatever, they look at the photos and they're, they're not saying like, wow, our parents must be really nervous. They're like, wow, that's like not a great picture of me. They're like, do you think that's a good picture? And what I love is when they first see her, they're like, wow, you look really old. And she- the thing is, instead of being like, all oh, these kids are like rude or whatever, she calls her butler and is like, get me a hand mirror and then stares at her own face and is like, oh, okay. Like she takes them. But in that moment, it's like, she takes them seriously exactly as they are. She doesn't try to moralize them or shame them or guilt them. She's just sort of studying them almost like she's doing a research project, which is kind of then the format that this whole book operates within.
1: Yeah, and so how do these stories kind of come together? Um, And it's funny because as I was reading it, I found I didn't really care. Like I knew that we would meet Frank Weiler at some point, and I didn't remember what that connection was.
0: So the mystery is basically that a statue of an angel is in the Met. It's allegedly by Michelangelo, and it was bought by the Met at auction for $256, I believe. Which they believe is a steal and there's some contention over whether it's actually by Michelangelo or not. And so they decide the kids that they're going to figure out if it's actually by him or not, and they actually have some smart ideas so Jamie at first is like we need to fingerprint the statue. And Claudia's like, you idiot. Like what? They The police didn't keep fingerprint sets back in that time. And he's like, no, but if he sculpted it with his hands, like his prints would be on like, you know, multiple statues or whatever. It's actually like very sharp of someone his age. Then they, they find a basically a maker's mark at the bottom that they think no one else has heard of. So they rent a PO box at Grand Central and send a letter and decide, and they wait for a response. And someone responds from the museum is like, yeah, we knew about that. It doesn't mean it's by him. It just means it's from his studio. So someone in the studio could have done it. Then they learn that Mrs. Basilie Frankweiler actually, it's from her collection that the Met bought this statue at auction. So they assume she'll have more information about this. They figure out she's at her country state in Farmington. And just when Jamie's like, I've kind of had enough of this adventure and I'm ready to go home after Claudia has an ugly cry at the train station. He decides he kind of like gives this one to her and he's like, let's go to Farmington. And so they go to her house and she has like an epic amount of filing cabinets of her own personal research. And also, iconically, wears a lab coat in her office while she's basically doing research that's grounded in paperwork. I couldn't. It's like one of these camp things where you're like, I don't need to understand this choice. I just love it.
1: I also found myself, I know we both did Googling to see if there was a film and then kind of immediately realizing that nothing will live up to how this is in my mind. And this book is filled with really beautiful sketches. There's also, I think, a valuable subtext to this book, which is when you find a thing you're really passionate about, everyone does love to learn, but we all learn so differently. And I think a few of the moments of real pleasure of learning for the siblings is when they get to opt in to a field trip. And if you notice, when it's not their class on the field trip, they think that the woman, the docent, is magic, and they're so impressed with her, and they're hanging on every word. When their class comes through, they're kind of hiding, goofing off. They don't hear a word because they're focused on the dynamic among the students. And it's this reminder that when we find moments where we're choosing to opt in and to learn, we're more likely to enjoy it. Also a sketch of the two of them at the library researching Michelangelo. And we're told, Claudia showed the executive ability of a corporation president. She assigned to Jamie the task of looking through for photographs. And they're sort of bickering, you're supposed to do the reading. I'm just using these pictures for relief. Claudia whispered, I have to rest my eyes sometimes. And they've put themselves in this position of like endless hours of research and they're kind of trolling the gift store as well. And I think part of what I loved about this is when you're young and you're on your own kind of beat, like, you know it's funny, you'll be working with people or everyone's had these moments where someone trots out some really bizarre fact about, you know, the platypus or something. Like, how do you know that? And then they reveal, oh, I had like a platypus period when I was eight. Right. When you read those eyewitness books, those encyclopedias when you're a kid, it feels really important and it doesn't feel like tedious learning. It feels really exciting. And I think this book is like, from Claudia to Basil, like how that can work in a life course.
0: Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a really sharp point because kids are so empowered by those like weird factoids that you get from all of those sources. And like, I can tell too, that I'm have like an almost instant friend when I meet someone and they're like, did you ever read the discovery ancient Egypt book? And I'm like, hundred percent let's talk about it. I'm like, King Tut. Like, did you have an ancient Egypt phase two? I definitely did. But also it sort of wounds you in life. Cause then you end up like adults who aren't on that track with you are like, where is this coming from? And like, stop trying to tell me how to live. Like my grandmother once was trying to eat cherries and I was like, you can't eat cherry. I was like, Fluffy, please. Like, I can't have you eat cherries. It's like the heat of July. I was like, Zachary Taylor died of this. Like, please promise me you'll never do this with milk. And she was like, I don't know where this is coming from, but I'm shutting this down right now. Like I'm having my cherries. Yeah, and things
1: just feel so, things feel so important to you, right? And they are important to you, like things that you really need validated. And I think part of what comes through in this book is like Basil validates them. Like you said, she she meets them where they are. And Claudia, you know, there's no pretend crisis at the beginning. We just know that she's dissatisfied, right? She's trying to kind of work through this. Like if Dawn Draper was a 12-year-old girl, <laughs> That's her. And we have this moment where um, she's trying to play hardball and she takes this really intense bath at Basil's house. And then Jamie basically lets it slip what they've been up to. Like Jamie is so me. He's like, literally yesterday I said, "Okay, I plead the fifth on that and then gave a 10 point explanation. Like, that's just who I am as a person. Where I'm like, I'm not going to speak on that. And then I have 10 points she comes out and she's so mad at him because he's kind of given away their story to Basil. And she says, Jamie, that was all I had. All we had. The only thing we had left. And he says, I just forgot, Claude. It's been so long since I've had a conversation with anyone but you. And it's like,
0: it's been four days. It's been four days. Seems like a lifetime. I also love that the butler comes out and serves them what amounts to macaroni and cheese, but says what it is in French. And then when they see it's Mac and cheese, they're like, it's basically Mac and cheese. And and then they're like disappointed. And it's just like, I don't know, this whole thing is just, it's too much, but also like Mrs. Basil understood her in that moment when she was like, That's all I had left. She was like, yes, you had your secret. And that meant something to you. And like, you think you've lost it. And then she kind of empowers them. And in a way, it's kind of this beautiful moment, because I think because she's an older woman, even though she's like mega rich, we're led to understand to the point that she can basically give away a Michelangelo just to give herself the thrill of knowing only her knowing that she did that. And then with these kids, it's like, here's two groups of people, elderly and kids who are often not believed, not taken seriously, not at the center of a lot of important conversations. And it's like a game respects game situation where she's like, here's how I was able to make myself feel special and motivated. And I'm going to like share that with you. And then they kind of have this conversation about like wanting to make her their grandmother that she overhears. And she's like, yeah, okay. Like, I guess I'm into it.
1: Well, and she also knows that she is usurping Saxonberg because Saxonberg, her boring lawyer,
0: is actually their grandfather. Plot twist. And she's like, "Okay, I guess you'll have lunch with me at the Met and I will explain certain things to you. But like, I'm the grandma now.
1: Yes, we have this moment after Jamie basically spills and says, we've been living at the Met. That's how we found out about all of this. And and we just need to know. And Basil gives them a timed experiment where they can go through her, quote, mixed up files and try to find the evidence of whether this was Michelangelo or not. And that's where they do find the evidence. But the bargain they have to make is that they will actually get that documentation in her will if they promise to not say anything in the meantime.
0: Which is... Also, like a sign of her respect for them that she's like, I'm not going to make this easy for you because you're kids. And then they're like, We think the museum should have it. And she was like, I don't care. That's not my decision. Like, you can do whatever you want after I'm dead, but like, I don't care what you do with it. Like, don't bug me with this part of it. I just need you to not say anything while I'm still alive. And they're like, Okay, cool. Like, thank you. So I'll be honest, I actually thought for a brief
1: part of this book that there was going to be a completely different plot twist because. Starting in this period, just, you know, thinking back to other topics we've covered recently, knowing that she gets it through kind of weird means through Europe, I actually thought there was going to be a Holocaust angle to this book. Oh my god, really? Because there's like a really strange story about how she comes to acquire this art.
0: Right. Through World War II, right? Yes.
1: Yes. So there's kind of like this, this strange story of how it comes to be in her possession. And I thought for a moment, is this book really about to take a turn? Because in the broader context of like, messy documentation, a lot of art was stolen from people.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So things that were presented as mysteries were actually just thefts. And I thought, oh, gosh, is that where this is going? No. So I was wrong. Thankfully not. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Aline Sherrill would not do that to us. I, yeah, I trust that she would, would not do that. She's like such a bright light. The fact that her first two books, one of them won the Newbery the first year it was published and the other one came as the runner up that same year. I mean... Nobody's topped
1: that. She also won Newbery uh, medals 29 years apart, which I think has never been topped. Also, she's won all the top awards. And this was one of a few manuscripts that she wrote early while she was raising her
0: children and extremely busy. Yeah, I mean, she's an icon for our times, for sure, for sure. So you've already outed yourself as a Claudia. Like, why do you think you are a Claudia?
1: I mean, Claudia is acting out something that I think I would have – I know I loved reading as a kid, right? For me, my kind of impactful, similar memory was visiting the Rhode Island School of Design Museum Mm. and being taken into the mummy room, which was in the basement, and just feeling like it was so magical and – mysterious, which I know there's like colonial stuff to unpack there, but the way it was presented to me was that this was so special. And I also remember being at, you know, Claudia's age or younger and feeling like other people aren't appreciating this the way that I am. Right. Like me as a fifth grader, like I'm getting this on a deeper level. I don't think I was, but I think I had a bit of Claudia in me of sort of like these people don't get it and I'm getting it, right? Like I'm vibing Mm -hmm. with the docent. I'm really
0: into this. I think that's fair. I mean, I think that's a relatable thing. There's a lot of stuff on social media lately about being like the oldest daughter and how you have like this real or imagined sense of increased responsibility that your siblings perhaps don't have. And I'm not an oldest daughter or oldest child. I'm the middle, but it's like only by a little bit. So I can sort of like attribute to both. But when she kind of is has like this attitude of like the club can't handle me, like nobody here gets me. That's a very like Leo vibe, but also something that I can, you know, remember feeling in some capacity. But uh, she has a line where she just says, I'm very organized,
1: <laughs> which like there's just so many moments where she's really like we can see the insecurity right it's like just below the surface and that's why she's desperate to feel important um but it's so fascinating that as part of that she doesn't want to be missed because she is missed like her family is a wreck probably about this but she wants to be notable which is like so interesting and different
0: yeah it's interesting it kind of is like a vibe of like i i hope you don't it's not like i don't want you, i want you to miss me it's like i hope i'm famous which is such a different instinct.
1: Yes, absolutely. And and I think too, like, you know, knowing a little bit about the context in which this was written and the fact that all it took was like literally one kernel to inspire this book. I do think there's a broader experience to wanting to go into cultural places where you're not supposed to, right? Like the Met is free, but so many things are off limits. And I think many people have fantasized like, well, what if I just jumped over the ropes and took a a nap?
0: Yeah, I think that every time I go to a house museum, I'm like, what if I just lay down in this bed right now? You know what I mean? Or like you kind of imagine yourself in these spaces where I'm always like, I hate when you go to a house museum and they only let you on the first floor. And it's like, well, I want to go upstairs. I want to see like, what the, What if I just went upstairs? What if when the tour guide turns their head, I just sneak away and I'm by myself and I go up the stairs? Like, what would really happen?
1: Well, I think part of what makes this book so brilliant is, again, it not being overly saccharine or sentimental is you learn that the bed smells bad and it's stuffy and yeah. it's not comfortable and you have to hang on the toilet. And, and I think in a lot of ways, it lets you play out this kind of dream or fantasy while also like very much taking you back to earth. I slept over at the zoo when I was younger and it was just like extremely uncomfortable physically. Like we slept on the floor.
0: Because it sounds cool to sleep at the zoo. See, that's the thing. I always bailed. I bailed on Girl Scouts just when I didn't bail on them. They bailed on me and like, I won't discuss that, but I bailed on them when they we're doing sleepovers. Sleepovers were my nightmare as a kid, because I always had a hard time sleeping. So to be in someone else's house and like up by myself all night is like not a dreamscape. But I know that people did that kind of thing. We're like, Hey, we're camping out in a giant like gym, like all the girl scout troops together. And it's like, why? Like, I just, it's not my, it's not my, it's not my jam. No,
1: and I mean, we learn there's like this quick reality of they're basically trying to forge a new life with $3, which is not going to work out, but like you kind of have hope for them that it's going to. And when they take that ride out to Frank Weiler's house, Jamie reveals when he gives a very chip um, cheap tip that they're out of money. So it's like, okay, I yeah, you, can't, you know, no matter how many hot fudge Sundays you sacrifice, there's only so far you're going to get as children trying to run away.
0: Also them doing laundry was chaos. Like all of their clothes turned gray because they did like black socks and white underwear and, you know, like separates. That's like a thing that does, it turns out matter when you do laundry. Sometimes, I don't know. Sometimes I just throw chaos to the wind. I just do it all together.
1: Yeah, and what's funny is we're left on this kind of parting note that they had kept some things behind at coat check, including these gray clothing, um, gray articles, and we learn, you know, they've yet to be picked up, which is just kind of like a funny way to end the book, right? Like they moved on, they never thought about these things again, but they were left sort of abandoned back at the Met.
0: I would like it's it would be iconic if whoever runs the Mets lost and found just like had up publicly like a violin case and like, you know, with the open, like we're waiting for this to be claimed, you know, like anyone who left this here. Do you think kids would get it now? Like, do kids still read this book?
1: So we can share a link, but for the 50th, they actually did a special interview with kids and they actually did a kind of walkthrough to talk about what was different between the 60s layout and today. And part of what's really fun is this little girl is taken on a special tour of the museum and you can just tell that she has major Claudia vibes. Like she thinks she's the coolest girl on the block and she kind of is. Ooh, I want to see that.
0: That sounds very fun.
1: And I I think it's interesting that, you know, there's kind of these adults that live in the background. We have Basil, we have the lawyer, we have the chauffeur, and we're given, I think as adults, these subtle cues that these aren't perfect kids, right? Like they don't say thank you. They're kind of rude, (laughs) Um, but they're imperfect and they're also just kind of trying to figure it out.
0: Yeah. I like that. I like that. They're not tasked with the emotional caretaking of adults in the story about like, Oh, like I don't want mom to worry. I mean, she did admittedly leave a letter to be, she mailed it strategically to be delivered the next day saying, don't call the FBI we're fine. So there is that, but I mean, like, you know, kids in that age are supposed to be somewhat selfish. Like that's part of like what they're, what's happening with their development. I'm seeing Raymond in the background. I'm thinking about like, does he know I'm like talking about him in a way?
1: So this content actually has to be kept from my cat because he does try to run away periodically. I I was thinking about this. And he's not allowed to live at the Met or anywhere other than
0: at home. I think he's an Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum cat. I think so, too.
1: I think so, too. And I think part of what, you know, this also recent... Reinterest in the theft at Isabella Stewart Gardner. Right, there was a new documentary just a few months ago. It also shows you that some of these places with millions and billions of dollars worth of insured property aren't as hard as they should have been to be broken into or just lived in, apparently.
0: I mean, look, we're not telling you to try it, but we're not telling you not to try living in the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Like, I wonder how that would go.
1: I think today it would go very differently, but we've learned through that theft that, you know, just a few decades ago, their security was next to none. I mean, have you seen Da Vinci Code? (sighs)
0: Yeah, I mean, my God, I feel like we could break into the loop. That's what that movie left me with. I was like, all I need is Tom Hanks, like a mansplaining man to explain some iconography and to cause a kind of stir or distraction. And the, th- the problem is you should have kicked him to the curb. That's where that yeah. movie went sideways. Yeah.
1: yeah. So I will tell you, I think museums as places that, you know, inspire and provoke the muses I don't like to be there in the dark we're not supposed to be there I think whatever comes out whatever happens I have to have my crystals in my pocket yep. you got to get out of there
0: I think that's fair I mean you might have Nicolas Cage knocking around like I don't want to take any of this on like I saw night at the museum and I was like I'm not convinced this isn't possible
1: nope. nope I'm not interested in that I also think that you know Talking about my mummy experience aside, now that we know more and understand where most things in museums came from, I don't want to spend an overnight in that environment.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. There's a very there's a recent series on PBS documentary about the Met that it kind of feels like the Met was involved in hiring this crew and conceptualizing it. And then COVID happened while they were filming for their, it was supposed to kind of celebrate their anniversary. And then the pandemic happened and they ended up covering that and reflecting on Black Lives Matter and a series of other things. But they kind of did this thing where they acknowledged issues with the museum, but only in seemingly surface ways. Like, yeah, we've had to lay people off, but you never see who's laid off or hear their experiences or how it's kind of affected their lives because of the financial costs of COVID. You also see some of the non Western collections that have been appropriated, basically stolen and put into the Met that are now being kind of reapatriated in some cases or recontextualized. But they also have family members like Rockefellers who donated these materials originally who clearly do not kind of seemingly get what's going on here, but not fully. So it's sort of like these cultures are being challenged, but the degree to which they're being challenged, I think, is an open question.
1: Yeah. I mean, we look back, you know, 100, 100 plus years ago, the original intention for this kind of places was to set up a place where working people or all people could almost like the original concept for urban parks, you know, rub shoulders with the elite. But the reality is they're elite born and bred and they're controlled by elites. And most of the staff comes from like a very select pool of people. There's also this kind of skewed sense when you read things about museums. The Met doesn't function like almost any museum in your community, but we talk about them as if they're all the same. Right. Right. This is born of a very different thing. It's always going to function very differently. I think where this book still really connects with me is. A lot of dreams that I had when I was younger was going to places like the British Museum. And the first time I went there, that was a dream come true for me, right? Mm -hmm. I think about it a bit differently now, but going to the Louvre for the first time, going to the Met for the first time um, was a really big deal when I was younger and this notion that it's free.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Met's not free anymore, but. Oh, is that true? If you're not from New York, you have to pay.
1: That was like a big shift
0: for them. But yeah, I mean, so it's partially free. It just depends where you're from, I guess. True. True,
1: Yeah. I mean, it's free for Claudia, so.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that they didn't take anything from the Met.
1: No. And and I think part of it is it's this notion for her of she's not just trying to get away from something. She's trying to invent something else. And she doesn't really want to be in trouble, right? Like she's not trying to run away to get attention. She's just trying to like find some, she really is like a Don Draper trying to find herself.
0: Yeah. It is weird to see someone who's like 11 or 12, like have an <laughs> existential crisis, but also not that weird in our times because i feel like well it might have seemed precocious in 1967 i think sadly now it's sort of like there's this attitude that kids need to be older much sooner like mm. she doesn't have a like if she had a cell phone that scene where there's a scene where Jamie is hiding in the bathroom and he thinks all the staff are gone. And he's really hoping that Claudia doesn't give them her secret away by coming out of hiding too early. So he's like, I'm going to mentally send her a message like using telepathy. And it's like really cute to read, but now you're like, Oh, I guess they would just text each other. You know what I mean? Like it's so different. And in girls five ever, there's a song about like the city boy who's like too old too soon. And I kind of thought about that reading this book too. It's like, would I don't know. Would it play differently now? Yeah. And if
1: if we could imagine, you know, situating her in like 1967 or, or 1966, we can imagine her parents like, let's say, because they're kind of upper middle class, maybe just her father is a wage earner and he has some high pressure job. She's on the Kevin rotation of taking care of him, but doesn't really feel like she's important in the family every night when they turned on the news, it really was like crisis after crisis.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And so in that moment, she's trying to figure out, well, how do I fit into this bigger picture? Right. And I was reading some reviews from different websites about the author and her background. She is a Jewish author and the different ways that, you know, trying to make sense of life, like this obviously isn't part of the narrative, but, you know, one generation removed from World War II, right? That different communities that people in this story might have been a part of, there's probably a lot that people aren't talking about in 1967, or she's seeing Vietnam on the news as she's coming of age, and she might have a lot of questions that just she doesn't even know how to ask. And sometimes when people don't know who to turn to, right, she can't go on TikTok and do an ask me anything. She runs
0: away. Yeah, I think that's a really, a really good point. I think like generational trauma is something that's probably like a unconscious influence on the book in that sense. And that sort of doesn't like explain her actions, but in some ways it puts it in context. Um, hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And
1: she's so she's so relatable. Like, I, I thought my favorite Claudia was from Babysitter's Club, but I might stand corrected now.
0: I don't know. It's close. They, they're very different journeys, but I like them both.
1: And Jamie absolutely grows on me. I, I want to believe that Steve and Kevin turn into interesting people, but maybe not. And that's
0: okay. Who knows? I think we don't have any information to go on. Like, I would love if Steve has his own plot that he's like <laughs> executing while they're away or he's like, oh, like she hurt my timeline with her plot line. But, you know, I they're all just like very likable characters in their own way.
1: Yeah, I have to say, if you're looking for a book that's kind of the perfect length to just escape for a few hours, it's about 150 pages. It's a very light and fast-paced read, and it definitely holds up. When you reread something that's more than 50 years old, we've had to,
0: like, buckle up. You know, like, rereading Nancy Drew. Nancy, we can't. No. No. Ray like won't make eye contact with me right now. And I'm like taking it very personally.
1: He's a silent partner in this podcast. He understands that it's just not part of his role. He's kind of like a Steven.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Okay, Ray. I will accept this choice. Whatever journey you're on, that's okay.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I'm probably going to look into other books by this author because I've never read any and people seem to really love them.
0: Mm-hmm. I've read another book of hers. I think the other one that was nominated for a Newbery but did not win. I forget the name of it, but it's a girl moves to town and her new friend is like, I'm a witch. And I don't remember much of the plot beyond that because it was a long time ago, but I remember liking it. So I'll have to reinvestigate. But this is definitely kind of lived up to my imagined, reimagined type. And it's made me want to go back and read sideways stories as well, because I'm hoping the humor in that book has lived up to what I remember it being. But who can say? I also think this is validating my choice to
1: like keep a lot of strange papers as an adult and not be questioned. (laughs)
0: you never know. It's all part of your research. Exactly. I just, I keep, I didn't read this in school, but I kind of wish I had, but in preparing for this, I was talking with Anna and she told me that she read it in school and her teacher made her do all the kids had to do a homework assignment where they had to, (laughs) to sketch out their runaway plan. Like they had to tell him how they would run away from home and where they would go. And then she was like, I don't know, like, I guess I would go visit my grandpa at his condo in Florida. And he was like, this is not realistic. Like, what are the semantics? How would you get there? And like, you know, he challenged her. And I was like, wow, why are we doing that? Yeah. I'm like, what's such a weird thing for a teacher to assign? Like, why are you encouraging that kind of thinking? He was working with the police. You think you think he was like, listen, I'm going to like, you know, we're going to like find some like red flags. Like some the kids who have thought about it too much, like I'll alert you.
1: I think that we have a very warped idea as a culture about who actually runs away and who doesn't, because Mm -hmm. at the time that this book came out, pretty much any time a young person went missing, run away. Right. Unless they had a ton of money, run away. Like and this author also came of age in the era of celeb kidnappings. So it was a time where people either cared a lot about a child going missing or pretty much not at all. Because this is pre-Milk Carton. I think that's true. And is this pre-Patty Hearst? I believe so, or it's contemporaneous. So Patty Hearst was born in 1954, and she was taken away in 1974. So yes.
0: Wow. But honestly, Claudia kind of has Patty vibes as well. Claudia's aesthetic, like everything about her, I was like, this is giving me deep Patty Hearst vibes, like the entire book.
1: Yeah, I would love to know what happened to Claudia next. I'd like to believe that she and Jamie made really good investments when they eventually sold off the documentation or she kind of took her own path and they just never released it and sat on the secret for life.
0: I love that. I like imagine being her college roommate and she's like, I'm going home for the weekend and you're like, are you? <laughs> yeah, right. You know what I right? mean? Where she like, I'm going to go buy some cigarettes and you're like, are you? <laughs> she's not she's, she's not. not she's definitely not
1: so we're kind of spending part of this summer delighting a little bit in these things that were really kind of escapist right and and fun and when I think back to the version of me who read this book and I I can picture like the font on the cover everything right so that book is actually with my parents but I can picture Everything about that book and how much I loved it. I do have, like, on my person, I do keep it close to me at all times, my sticker portfolio. So, the same person who, you know, kind of imagined these museum getaways and, like, oh, I'm getting this on a deeper level. I do still have a lot of my stickers. And do you know who the star artist in that collection is? Would love to hear. It's not Michelangelo. So,
0: my Michelangelo is Lisa Frank. Wow. I can't even put a dollar amount on what your collection must be worth these days. Did the stickers work? Probably not.
1: Wow. But, you know, they were part of my art collection and my art journey. Like that panda with a paintbrush. Yeah, that's that's my
0: Sistine Chapel. I don't want to know what dolphins actually look like because I just want to have Lisa Frank's rendering. I agree. I agree.
1: I want to see a panda with like a
0: sideways cap and a sunglasses. Paintbrush. Yeah. Like I don't want to see, and I don't want to experience nature any other way. And I also love the from nowhere and for no reason mystery that she's built around herself. That is a very Mrs. Basley Frankweiler vibe of like, she was once in a documentary. I'm going to have to find a link on urban outfitters website where she refused to appear on camera. And it was an instantly iconic Brief documentary. We're going to have to find it and screen this thing because I need to know everything about her personal presentation, her life story, the business, everything. So we're going to be diving into all of it.
1: We are working this summer with a fantastic young artist. Her name is Rebecca, and she is doing some work with us. We really want to see, like, if you have anything cool, Lisa Frank, maybe you were really into the denim jacket. Maybe you wow. like, took that panda lifestyle to its fullest degree. We'd love to see it. And we're going to be working with Rebecca on some additional fan art, maybe a collage. We don't know. It's kind of like WWLFD. Like, what would Lisa Frank do?
0: Truly um, can't answer that question. Can't. I think
1: some of that answer is drug related. So we'll have to explore that further, but we're going to compile some resources so that we're all on the same page, but we want to see kind of your Lisa Frank journey. So feel free to email us or contact us right on Patreon. And that will be what's coming out next.
0: 100%. I can't wait for this. It's going to be a real journey. I'm really interested. I love when people share their kind of collections with us and their stories. And, you know, I'm scared about what we're going to find out in the Lisa Frank corporate story.
1: Yes. And if that's liable, please take out what I said previously. But I had read an expose about Lisa Frank that included some, you know, like induced cultures sure. um, through substances. So we'll determine more. Do you of think that the
0: future. Van Halen line model citizen zero discipline was about Lisa Frank, both as corporate citizen and as private person? Yes. OK, interesting. So, you know, like I we will have a lot of questions we'll have to examine going forward. There's just like a lot of deep dives that we'll be doing. So stay tuned. We'll be doing that next month. Yes. Can't wait to see it. Cannot wait. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We do so love making these episodes. Thank you for your support for this community. We love talking with you on discord and other places. Allison, if people want to chat with you, where might they find you? Feel free to reach out to us
1: right on Discord. You can also find me at Allison Horrocks on Twitter or Instagram. You can also reach out to us on the Patreon page. We really love when you give us feedback on what you'd like to see for future episodes. That's very helpful to us. Mary, if they would like to find you, how do
0: they do that? So you can find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney or Twitter at Mary Mahoney 123. And you can also find on our Discord, we have a channel about future Patreon episodes where we have a database where you can put your idea. And this episode from the mix Up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler was one of those. So you can definitely reach us that way with your thoughts and ideas. We also recently created a channel where you can share things that you're working on, like a book or an article or your business or video or music or whatever, so that we can also help support you. Um, So thanks very much. Thanks for joining us, everyone, to listen to this Patreon episode. Oftentimes we get messages from such sweet listeners who ask how they can support us and support the show. And joining the Patreon is definitely a huge way to do that. We so appreciate all of you who have done that so far. You can also pre-order our book. So if you go to any of our accounts or our website, dollsofourlivepod.com, you can find the pre-order link for our book coming out November 7th. Um, And we look forward to talking more about that and sharing that with you soon. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you on our next episode.